What's scanning my osteoporotic bones? My name is Jeff and I can't keep a straight face. This is this is how it's made. The podcast where we botch the introductions and also uh, talk to uh, talk to the people who are shaping the future of healthcare. Um, my guest today is uh, Dr. Alexander Bilbilly for this uh, sub podcast of MedTech Talks. How's it going, Alex? It's going well. How are you, Jeff? Uh, it's um, I'm I'm kind of scared because at any moment my cat could pop out of here, and we just posted a trailer where I saw myself picking the cat off the table on screen. So I'm just constantly on the lookout. He's he's absolutely terrifying. Uh, it's not the end of the world. I'm sure your viewers would enjoy a little uh, break. You see, you see, Goose is out to get me. I think he wants to be the star of the show, but I I can't let that happen. Um, in all seriousness, though, like I I you know. I've read a little bit into who you are and we've chatted a little bit about, uh, you know, what you do, but like, it seems like you're balancing so much. How are you doing though? Like, how are you balancing this all? Uh, Google calendar, uh, Asana, uh, several lists in several different places. Um, it's just, uh, my organization and time management skills have evolved out of necessity. Yeah. You know, when I was, when I was, you know, in high school and undergrad, you asked my friends, I was never the most organized. I was never the person that was always on time, mm -hmm. but it became necessary to function and just sort of evolve from there. Well, I mean, I definitely have something to learn from you, but without further ado, like let, let's dig in. You talked a little bit about how you weren't organized before when you were, when you were younger, perhaps even before medicine. Hi, Goose. Um, what was your path into medicine? Like, why choose this specific area of expertise or career to focus in? When I was uh, younger, I mean, I, I wasn't very forward thinking. Like, I was very much living my childhood life. And, and I had a great childhood, um, played sports, played video games, hung out with friends all the time. And, you know, I just... I never really thought too much of the, about the future because the present was so good. Yeah. Uh, but my family is very much medicine focused. Uh, my parents and my brother and my aunts and uncles and cousins are many, most of them are physicians. Um, if they're not, they're either pharmacists. So medicine is, is big in, in my family. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I guess I was just sort of on a default path to be honest with you. Um, and, uh, then, in sort of my third year of medical school, you know, you got to figure out what you want to do. Yeah. So your specialty, your residency. And I mean, there was, I think, 34, 37 different options when I was uh, a med student. Plenty more and now. You, you, I'm sure there's more now. <laughs> and uh, it's just, it's not realistic to be able to truly uh, evaluate all of these potential careers, many of which are completely you know, totally different lives, mm -hmm. right? Like going to the OR in the morning and having clinic versus, you know, reading slides uh, for pathology or reading images for x-ray, like very different lives, yeah. right? So I spent as much time as I could evaluating different options, but I, I knew I was always interested in computer science and physics ever since I was a little boy. Um, and so radiology was kind of natural for me. And then what really sealed the deal for me is I... I knew I wanted to do something with computer science. And then right around time I was finishing medical school, um, like a landmark AI paper came out. It was the ImageNet paper mm -hmm. um, from the University of Toronto. 
And as soon as I saw that, I was like, done. Radiology, machine learning, let's go. And, uh, and here we are today. That's fascinating. So you had these combined interests of, I guess, medicine from kind of the nurture that your family had being surrounded by people with medicine, as well as your personal interest in computer science. Um, I mean, did you have, or did you attempt to bring these fields together before, before residency or before medical school, or was it just something that kind of came together over time? No. Uh, so there were a few, um, attempts made, uh, probably the best one I made was when I was an undergrad where my parents are family physicians and, um, they had a problem where a lot of their, they had a pretty big sort of patient population they were looking after. And it was hard to keep track of who's due for a screening test or like a pap smear or a fecal occult blood test or a colonoscopy. Um, and so I made a very simple sort of program with a front end that basically will keep track of patients when they've had these tests and will basically let the receptionist know that, you know, this list of patients, they need uh, an update of their mammogram or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's cool is that with that simple program, we can also like track adherence. So we can see that, you know, before we started using it, like 70%, we had 70% adherence rate. And then as we started using it, there's like 80 and 90%. Uh, and it's really just a nudge, right? Just to let the patient know that, you know what, because most people are pretty concerned and want to do what's best for themselves in terms mm-hmm. of their healthcare. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of, of letting them know. And it seemed to very simple approach, but seemed to work really well. And, and that's also kind of the first time I got the sense that like, you know, doing something where you feel like you potentially save lives or even actually save lives or even just improve somebody's quality of life. It's, it's a very different sense of accomplishment than anything else I've experienced, whether, you know, um, creating a cool program that's not related to medicine or achieving a certain score or a certain mark or, or whatever, like these are, they're, they feel fundamentally different. And that's what really sort of attracted me to medicine as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, you, you focused on radiology partly because you just said, um, there was that tie in with machine learning and AI, all these new fields that are coming about and the applicability of the sheer amount of data that's available in the radiology space. Um, but you also just mentioned to me that you like to have that impact of improving patient lives. So why not focus on direct patient care? Why focus on radiology? Oh, well, that's because I, when I went through medical school, like I really loved figuring out what's going on, yeah. but I, I didn't really enjoy the management part <laughs> of, of patient care. Uh, I, I hope that's not bad to say. It just, I didn't find it as as interesting and as stimulating for me. Yeah. Uh, I understand, like, I mean, I'm not saying it's not intellectually stimulating. It very much is, especially now where there's all these new therapeutics, mm-hmm. like across the whole range of the therapeutic spectrum. But back back when I was sort of in med school and I was like in trauma medicine, it's like, okay, the treatment for this is, you know, this much fluids at this flow rate with this medicine. And just like, to me, that wasn't really striking a chord. It was really more like, okay, this patient comes in with this constellation of symptoms, and these are the sort of findings on investigations or whatever. What's the diagnosis here? Yeah. And, and that's what attracted me to diagnostic radiology. Mm-hmm. Even though a lot of our actual day-to-day work is, you know, following things up or, or tracking disease, but there's still that really 
exciting part of diagnostic radiology where you make the diagnosis. And that's before we started the call, I was telling you how I actually enjoyed being on call as a resident. And it's because of that. It's because an unknown comes to you and you've got to figure out what's going on. And that dictates the whole treatment path. So I, I felt like it was, I found it more interesting. Mm -hmm. So you, you definitely like solving the problems, but how, like what, so for those who don't know what radiology is in the audience, what is radiology and how has the practice of it changed from the span of when you first entered your residency program to where you are now? So first question. So radiology is, is basically the, um, interpretation of medical images for the most part, there's different fields of radiology where you do interventional radiology and actually intervene and, and do certain things. Uh, but in general, it's, it's you, you acquire imaging information, whether it's from ultrasound, CT, MRI, nuclear medicine studies, uh, and you interpret these images mm -hmm. uh, with the idea of providing some sort of clinically actionable information mm -hmm. that can help further this patient's care. Um, and so like, uh, you know, CAT scans, this is all under within, under the sort of umbrella of radiology. Yeah. In terms of how radiology has changed uh, from when I was a trainee, like I, I finished my residency, my radiology residency about three, three years ago. Um, and I started in 2013 or 2014. I, I feel like it hasn't really, the practice of radiology hasn't really changed that much. Um, there's, there's always new technology, new techniques that are introduced. Uh, but at least during the past, you know, seven years, to me, they've pretty much all felt incremental as opposed to like ground shifting, mm -hmm. um, you know, improved scanner times, uh, different ways of acquiring MRI images that maybe you can use it now for newer indications or other indications, yeah. like other clinical scenarios than before. But to me, these are sort of incremental and in the actual day-to-day -day practice of radiology hasn't changed that much. Other than I think everybody is just busier, just the sheer volume of work um, is just higher across the board. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you mentioned that the sheer volume of work is higher because there's so much need. And this, this constant theme in medicine, or at least in healthcare overall, is that there's so much need but often it's, it goes unfulfilled because of funding problems, lack of equipment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, there, there's certainly the benefit of uh, novel algorithms that will allow for uh, some work to be taken off of radiologists' plate to allow for radiologists to be used where they're, they're, they're most needed. But at the same time, I think there's perhaps, maybe I'm wrong, this broader sentiment of uh, these novel algorithms taking over some of the work that radiologists do. Is, is that fear pervasive or is the attitude more towards the former thing that I just said? Um, so let me backtrack just a little bit. Sure. When I say like the, uh, the practice of radiology hasn't changed, I, I think that is true for the most part. Okay. We're starting to see like little slivers of sort of intelligent augmentation uh -huh. across the sort of radiology workflow now. Like, I don't, I don't really use any of that in, in my practice. And I, I don't know if there's any of that in use at our hospital in particular, but you do hear, you see these news articles about certain hospitals implementing certain little things that are designed to either improve efficiency or, or quality or, or safety. Uh, so, so we're starting to see that now. Um, 
the reason that's related is because your question of like, um, how, how is this going to impact the, the day-to-day work yeah. of the radiologist? Yeah. Um, and, and ultimately, how does it impact sort of healthcare system and, and the patient uh, in the end? And I think that if we were talking three, four years ago, the, the culture around machine learning and, and medicine and radiology in particular was very adversarial. Like you have computer scientists going on record, like, or venture, cap, venture capitalists, these sort of tech folks that go on record and say, you know, practicing radiology will be, should be criminal in five years <laughs> because he's out of, I kid you not, right? That's like, wild. I'm not going to say who said that, but uh, yeah, that's been said. And, uh, and I was there in reality when that was said. Jeez. And it's just, so that adversarial culture, um, yeah. I think is, is not as pervasive anymore. Okay. People are realizing that um, it's to the benefit of the healthcare system and, and to the patient that we sort of work together, both the, the medical side and the technology, computer science, business side, and bring solutions that are validated, are safe, are effective, and that makes sense from a workflow perspective. And I think that's what we're starting to see a little bit now. And I am sure that in the next five years, we're going to see a lot more of it, mm-hmm. partly because the stresses on the healthcare system like demand some solution because the current trajectory is, is simply not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Okay. So, I mean, when that landmark paper came out, that's when you decided to go into radiology, correct? I'm just getting the timeline straight. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. That's when I firmly made my decision. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, how much academic research is there? uh, Because academic research is what's expected from clinicians and residents. How much academic research is there on the effectiveness and applications of these novel tools? (laughs) It's It's a great question. There is actually, I just read something, I think earlier today, this morning, um, there's been 20,000 AI publications in medicine, but less than 1% of them would beat uh, a quality bar to be included in a meta-analysis. And I think that's very much in keeping with uh, my experience and my colleagues' experiences. You see all of these papers come out um, that say, you know, so-and-so algorithm performs better than radiologists in diagnosing X or so-and-so algorithm does better than, you know, whatever in diagnosing, whatever. And, and you, when you look into these papers, the vast majority of them, they, they use a retrospective data set. They do retrospective testing. There's no form of external validation. And there's actually relatively little insight into the methodology that you would need to f- like properly evaluate the paper. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we've seen, you know, um, these sort of like implementational disasters where you have an AI algorithm that's developed by a group and it looks like it performs spectacularly and then it's deployed somewhere else and it's like a coin flip in terms of its performance. And, and it's because people are not yet used to how to properly evaluate and validate these algorithms. Um, we can talk deep. There's reasons why yeah. that <laughs> is. Uh, I don't think, you know, that might take an hour, but... Um, but I, but I think we're, as a, as a medical body, we're, we're now like, you know, I have a, like a meeting later today where we're, we're introducing uh, an AI curriculum into medical teaching to oh. 
predominantly, predominantly to give, uh, you know, medical students and, and, and clinicians uh, critical appraisal skills as it relates to AI. You know how we build critical appraisal skills for evaluating clinical trial and, and if the methodology is, is sound, same sort of thing, same kind of tool, but for a slightly different use case. That's fascinating because, I mean, first of all, I'm a little salty because I missed out on computer science being included in my high school education, and now I'm missing out on AI being included in my medical education. So I just seem to miss the good parts. This is infuriating. Hey, you got YouTube. You got YouTube. You have no excuse. <laughs> all right. All right. You better hold me to that. But I mean, regardless of that, it seems like, you know, academic medicine hasn't really yet figured out a way to study the, the effectiveness of these tools. And I've done a little review of, for example, the, uh, the effectiveness of different companies, sepsis detection tools as well. And I mean, again, they're, they're rather, rather scattered. They're, the quality of the studies leaves much to be desired. So, I mean, given this academic background that you must have been steeped in during your residency, what led you towards a more entrepreneurial path instead of focusing just on the academic medicine path and trying to improve that? Um, I think the answer for me, I think, is very simple. Like, I'm doing this. We're, we're sort of the vision of the, the, the reason this like our, our startup company exists is to impact as many people as possible in a positive way. And in order to do that, you need to not only develop an impactful technology, but you need to somehow distribute it and support it and get it through approvals. And there has to be some entity that supports the product, right? This, this thing. And as far as I could see, there was no real way to do that efficiently from within an academic setting alone. Uh, often, like, I think that's the real value of companies is there's kind of this vehicle where you can say, this is the mission and, and you can raise money for that mission. You can build policies that support that mission. And it's an entity that spans, you know, it's not tied to one institution. It's, it's, it's sort of everywhere. Like it could be anywhere. And, um, and that's why you know, that's what we decided to do. Uh, my co-founder, Mark Cicero, and I is to basically start this this thing because our goal is to impact as many people. And we found no way to to do that from within purely an academic setting. Mm -hmm. So let's backtrack a little and talk a little bit about the story of 16-bit. How did your co-founder and you meet? What was the, you know, what was the problem that sparked that that idea or that that impetus to start a company? And where have you guys gone or what was, what were some highlights of your 16 bit experience so far? There's been a lot of sort of, uh, it's been a roller coaster. It's been a lot of fun and excitement, uh, and challenges. Um, but how we started was, uh, Mark, uh, we, we met in residency. So both of us were radiology residency, University of Toronto. Uh, Mark is an engineer by background and, um, and uh, we, we, both, we basically both were interested in machine learning at the same time. We found ourselves um, sort of in the same program and we, we, we did a research project together. Uh, this, is, this is a project to uh, basically uh, train a convolutional neural network to detect pathology on chest x-ray. It's very like trivial now but back then i think it was the first or at least one of the first papers to do that mm -hmm. um 
And from that, we sort of start to started to think about and explore other ways that we can, we can, you know, make impactful things. And, uh, and then we were both at a, at a hospital at that time, at the same hospital, same academic hospital. And I'll, we tried to explore a way to like, you know, do that from within the hospital, but it became challenging. Uh, there were a lot of, um, roadblocks and although we overcame some of them, we couldn't overcome all of them. And, and then it became pretty clear that like, we should do this from within a separate sort of company. And that's really why and how we, we spawned the business. Um, shortly after they incorporated in October of 2016, uh, there was the uh, RSNA 2017 machine learning competition for pediatric bone age. And this is, this is like it, the, the first big international medical imaging AI competition held by the RSNA, which is uh, one of the largest medical uh, organizations in the world, uh, definitely the largest for radiology. And, uh, and we ended up winning that competition. Um, and this is November, 2017. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that gave us a lot of sort of, um, gives a lot of confidence for sure, because we, 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 we thought we were good at what we do, which is bridging the clinical and technical gaps. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but we didn't know, right. We just thought we were good at what we did, but we didn't know for sure. Winning that competition did two things big things. It sort of gave us internal confidence to move forward. Uh, but it also gave us some credibility to separate ourselves from a lot of the, what we perceive as noise in the industry. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. It seems like that first win was so important to you in terms of building some kind of team culture, but in the broad, broad world of founding like med tech companies, unless you go into, um, accelerators or competitions such as like what you did apart from trying to raise funds like it seems like those wins are so hard to come by and it might be difficult for physicians and their teams or healthcare workers and their teams to coalesce around idea and to feel like they can do it like is, is my notion here wrong or do you think that perhaps um you know i guess i don't know what i'm saying here it how how important was that win to you because it seems like it was I think it was important to us, um, for the reasons that I mentioned, yeah. uh, but I also think that like, you know, having been in the health tech ecosystem in Toronto for several years now, there's been a huge shift mm -hmm. and a big change, like opportunities that, you know, were available before were kind of, I would say much more sparse than they are now. So if you're a health tech innovator, yeah. um, at least in Toronto, I'm sure it's, I mean, definitely similar patterns are occurring elsewhere, but from my personal experience in Toronto, there's so much more opportunity now, whether it's like support from, uh, amazing programs like H2I, which is the health to innovation. It's like a UFT spawned accelerator for health tech companies. Um, Mars has initiatives. The Vector Institute is now sort of like this, like national, like provincial investment into the AI ecosystem. Uh, there's so many, so many opportunities now that, um, you know, you don't need to win an international competition to, to get the right people in play and get the right people interested in what you're doing to be successful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, since that win, what has 16 bit done? So, um, 
we, so we, we competed again the following year for pneumonia. We came, uh, fourth out of, I think it was 1,499 teams. So we did pretty well. Not shabby. Um, yeah, not, not shabby. Um, honestly, the competitions are really fun, but they also become a little distracting because, you know, you're also trying to build a business, right? So, um. Yeah. The challenge of the business is you have to do things that you find interesting, but also things that make financial sense and that have a, a, a path forward from a commercialization perspective. So we couldn't just keep competing in competitions, even though it is fun. Um, we've been the recipient of, of several grants. Uh, one is to uh, help build a, a COVID-19 tool mm -hmm. to help monitor pa uh, inpatients suffering from COVID-19. <laughs> he doesn't care. Hey, Goose. He doesn't care. <laughs> Maybe Goose has something to say about uh, the health tech in Toronto. Sir, do you have anything to say? I think he's speechless. But go on. Strong, silent type. <laughs> uh, what else have we done? Um, so that's. So, so there's a couple of different initiatives we're working on. We actually were working on mammography for a while, uh, but we found it really tough to get the necessary data that we needed um, within a reasonable amount of time before sort of international competitors kind of outpaced us in that space. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, we started thinking a lot more about less obvious applications of machine learning that could be potentially very impactful. Mm -hmm. And we started going down, um, the sort of, uh, the, we started going down this way of thinking, but specifically for osteoporosis. And we found, we created a partnership with Amgen, uh, that they funded some of our early work. Uh, we found, uh, a date, like a, a Canadian data set that we could use. We proved the concept. Uh, and then we, um, we filed for a provisional patent, which was followed by a non-provisional patent, which we should be hearing back. The turnaround time is like very long. It's like 18 months. I think we're like at the tail end of that now. Um, and then, uh, we, we got another data set to sort of further refine the algorithms and, uh, and test them, like externally validate them. Uh, and then we started, you know, building a product around it. Cause it's one thing to have an algorithm, yeah. but you've got to build a product to serve that algorithm and integrate into the workflow and, and do all that. And all the meanwhile, we're having conversations with, um, regulatory consultants and trying to figure out our regulatory path forward. And something we're very proud of is we achieved FDA breakthrough status for our osteoporosis product. What's that? Uh, which is. So the FDA breakthrough status is essentially in a formal acknowledgement by the FDA saying that your product is potentially very impactful for the population. Uh -huh. So we're committed to work with you closely and interface with you regularly to basically define the best regulatory path and try to get it approved as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been a very informative um, and fruitful um uh, program and and we're really really um really want to thank the fda for that it, it's been very helpful for us uh and so that's where we stand today today we stand where we have the mvp of the product done uh we're just doing some final testing on it 
uh, and we're uh, prepared to submit Health Canada application soon. Uh, and also we interface with the FDA for almost a year now uh, to try to define the best regulatory path forward in the U.S. That's fascinating. You've done so much in, in terms of actually moving the product forward. But you see, the, 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 the real killer question here is how did you come up with the name 16-bit? Well, so uh, you, you get, we always get that question uh, because it's I guess it's uh, it's a very like nuanced uh, reasoning for it. So um, most normal images are stored in what's called eight bit RGB. So uh, it's usually like three numbers between zero and two hundred fifty six, um, and uh, and that defines like the image and the color. In medical images. Um, they're, they're usually grayscale images. So there's no three color channel. There's one channel. Uh, but that integer, instead of going from 0 to 255 or 256, depending on you, you know, your, uh, your framework, um, it goes from 0 to 65,536. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that's encoded in 16 bits. Mm -hmm. It takes 16 bits to encode that, an integer like that. Uh, and that's, that's the max amount that... Um, medical images can be encoded in. Uh, and, and the reasoning for that is 16-bit um, sort of speaks to our, our technical domain knowledge. Like, like we have technical. deep domain knowledge. It is technical, <laughs> but also speaks to like our, so there's, you know, 65,536 shades of gray. <laughs> our eyes can only see a couple of them. Uh, and that's why in radiology, we, we always sort of window. That's what windowing does. So we can look at different parts of this range of data. Oh, that's what windowing yes. does. Okay. That's what windowing does. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> That's what windowing does. So, so our namesake is sort of trying to say, like, we're trying to see the whole picture here. We're trying to extract all the information we can from the data that's available to us. That, that, did, you, did you think of that all the way through naming your company? Did, did, or was it something that you back justified? No, uh, we, when we were deciding on what to name the company, we had a brainstorming session, um, and, and that's what we came up with. That's, yeah, and, and that was the reasoning. That's fascinating. Wow, okay. So, I mean, back to the actual product that you've made, um, in my encounters with some companies that are doing, um, that, are, that are considering, like, protection of the ideas that, makes them what they are. So patenting, um, there's this, there's been this back and forth about patenting software or algorithms. Like on one hand, if you patent, sure you do protect it, but on the other hand, by patenting, you publish the ideas behind what makes your product tick and that can be back engineered. So why did you choose to go with the route of patenting the software that you have? It's a, it's a good question. Um, Patenting AI algorithms uh, is a very tricky new area. Uh, again, this sort of uh, reminds me of a, a, another program that you know we leverage from the ecosystem that's available to us is through through TD Bank. They have this like patent program where they offer um, uh, patent lawyer funding for patent lawyers and intellectual property uh, protection for startups. So we leverage that to basically hire probably the world's best firm that uh, is sort of based out of California and, and they do a lot of AI patent work. Mm -hmm. um, 
and what we what we decided to patent is uh, kind of like how it's used. So you don't patent the algorithm itself, but you patent the way in which or the embodiment in which it's used. Okay. Um, and so that's what we decided to patent. There's a couple of reasons it's useful uh, from a from a startup perspective. One is it is some potential level of protection. Um, when you're when you're a startup, uh, you're often competing with a lot of players, and these players can be small startups like you, or very well-funded companies, or international conglomerates. So, having some level of protection, um, I think, is, is is sound strategic thinking. The other reason is that it's favorable from an investor focus. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking to raise money and we haven't, we haven't raised any dilutive money yet. We've been really lucky in that we've, again, leveraged the ecosystem available to us and basically uh, used our academic side to, to fund the work through academic industry grants. Um, but if, and when we do decide to raise money, it's very favorable. Investors see very favorable when, when we have some, when we've thought about how are we going to protect the innovation that we've created? And one way to do that is through patenting. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So, I mean, patenting is just one step of the process of, I guess, putting your company together. Another, as you mentioned before, is the regulatory approval. So, I mean, I, I know it's a complex issue and we could talk for more than an hour about it, but the, the area of approving um, novel algorithms, novel ways of, you know, processing data and coming up with a useful output, um, that in itself isn't something that's existed for very long in, the, in, in, in terms of our technical uh, toolkit. So what are the nuances of that? I think we mentioned before, just to frame this conversation, um, that if you set the bar too high in terms of what it takes to uh, approve or in terms of proof that your algorithm works, um, if you set that bar too high, then people won't, won't go for the, the, the approval or won't try to develop these products um, because it'll be too hard. But if you set it too low, then you run the risk that the, um, you, you run the risk that the algorithm won't work. So do you have a more nuanced approach to thinking about this or voicing it? Because I'm a beginner and like, I'm assuming that a lot of our listeners don't really know about the nuance of this as well. Yeah. Um, so like you said, it's a, it's a really important problem to think about or to solve because if the bar is too high to get regulatory approved as an AI product, then you're basically you're doing a disservice to the population because you're preventing potentially life-saving technology from reaching patients. But if you set the bar too low, you're also doing a disservice to the population because you're, poten you're, you're potentially letting unsafe algorithms get to the patient. So the, the measure by which you validate an algorithm for approval should, should be scaled according to the risk of the algorithm. So if the algorithm dictates autonomously whether somebody goes for surgery or not, that bar better be very high, mm -hmm. right? But if the algorithm, uh, in our case, our algorithm leverages existing data, images that have already been acquired on the patient to extract uh, essentially uh, whether this patient's at risk of osteoporosis or not, the next step being a conversation with a patient to discuss their clinical risk factors for osteoporosis. Maybe the bar shouldn't be set super high because 
the risk to the patient is relatively low. Yeah. The, the, the next step that our algorithm would sort of trigger is a conversation with the patient. Mm -hmm. And the next step after that might be a DEXA scan, which is associated with a very fractional amount of radiation and doesn't cost the healthcare system that much money. So this is how you make the argument for, for the level of validation required for your algorithm. And I mentioned the FDA breakthrough conversations we've been having with the FDA. Um, that's a lot of what we're talking about is like, they want to understand what is the risk benefit profile. So, you know, how much harm can we potentially cause to the patient relative to how much benefit we can cause the patient. Uh, and, and they have to understand that in order to iterate with us on what is an appropriate level of rigor when it comes to the clinical validation. I think, I think at a minimum, there has to be some some measure of the algorithm's generalizability. And what I mean by that is, in order to develop an, al an AI algorithm, you basically take a, a, a data set and you train and you validate and sometimes you test on that data set. Mm -hmm. But if your methodology is not sound or if you're unlucky, everything might look great, but as soon as you take this algorithm and go somewhere else, it may not perform well and you don't know why. So the, there, there has to be, I think at a minimum for most algorithms in medicine, there has to be some level of external validity where an algorithm was tested on some geographically distinct or population distinct or some external data. And you have to justify yeah. that because most of the papers that are in the literature with AI tools in medicine, most of them have not done that. And, and I think that's a, that's probably AI's like Achilles heel is like proving that the algorithm generalizes because the danger is you often don't know that it doesn't generalize unless you test. So everything could look great internally, uh, but until you test it, you don't know. So here's a summary for the layperson. If, if you've seen the meme of the AI algorithm trying to differentiate between chihuahuas and blueberry muffins, um, uh, it, it doesn't do a very good job. So what you're trying to do is to try to train the algorithm to differentiate better between blueberries and uh, blueberry muffins and chihuahuas. Except the what's at risk here isn't whether or not it's a blueberry muffin or a chihuahua. What's at risk here is whether or not the patient gets a potentially harmful procedure done. And that's why it's so yeah. important. And put it this way, you don't know that your algorithm can't differentiate between chihuahuas and blueberry muffins unless you test it on blueberry muffins. Fair enough. Right? So if your data set just contains different kinds of dogs and then you test it somewhere else and that data contains blueberry muffins, your performance will look great internally in your testing, but when you deploy it, it's going to not perform well. Fascinating. I have never related that back to a meme before, but there's a first for everything. There's a first for everything. <laughs> So, I mean, given your recent success in terms of being able to, you know, uh, move forward with the patenting um, or the provisional patenting of what you're doing, um, as well as the, the breakthrough status, um, you, you mentioned that you haven't raised funds. Why haven't you done that? It seems like um, every day there, there's this new announcement of like XYZ company has raised uh, X million dollars at blah valuation. And it, it seems exciting to laypersons like, oh my God, that's so much money. 
but why haven't you done that? Wouldn't that spur your development faster to enable you to actually be able to help patients faster? It's a, it's a good question. And it's something we spend a reasonable amount of time thinking and, and we often revisit this question. The question we ask ourselves is, would X million dollars get us to our next milestone faster? And often the answer is no. Um, and that's, that's really why we haven't raised money so far. We've been lucky in the sense that one, we've been able to, again, leverage the ecosystem to fund our work so far. We have a very lean, but an extremely passionate team. Uh, and, and this would be impossible without our team. So, so we have the right lean team. We have the, we've leveraged funding to support this team and the milestones that we have, a lot of it, like for a while, we were limited by data. We can't develop these things without data. So, you know, data is reliant on a third partner and often having money sitting in the bank can't really influence internal processes. At least we've found that it doesn't really influence internal processes for getting data out. Uh, so, so we decided not to raise because of that. It's getting to the point now where if we raise money, it's not going to be to, um, to make the product because we've already made the product. It's going to be to scale. It's going to be to, we have this thing that's approved. We want a sales and support team to just scale to the market. Um, but this is something that's very, uh, it's, it's a very complicated decision because the other thing is we're sort of, we operate at the intersection of two fairly specialized fields, mm -hmm. intersection of, you know, radiology, uh, any intersection of like cutting edge sort of machine learning. And we, we went through this CDL program, uh, the creative destruction lab. We graduated, um, a couple of years ago. And we met a lot of world-class investors, but there are probably, I can probably count on my one hand, how many investors I would feel comfortable dictating the path of the company, because I think very few people understand both sides of the coin like we do. Mm -hmm. So that's also a reason we haven't raised is, is we were, when you, when you bring on an investor, you know, you bring another partner to the table, like that's a decision maker. Uh, and so finding somebody that you're comfortable making these big decisions that dictate the long-term health of the company, um, I think is, you need to really vet somebody for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's a definitely a really well thought out answer. And it, it's certainly really important to pick the right person to support you in terms of decision making, as well as to help you scale the product. Because again, you can create something that could help millions, if not billions of people, but if it's not spread out there properly with the proper sales team, et cetera, then it, it's, it's, it's not going to impact that many people. That's why it's important. But overall, it seems like you've done so much in the like entrepreneurial side of things with 16 bit. Do you continue any work in the, um, clinical or academic sense? Yeah. Yeah. So we've always seen our unique advantage is that you know, the clinical side and the technical machine learning side. And so, you know, our, our sort of view is we always want to keep a foot in clinical medicine, at least to some degree. 
And so right now I have like a, a three day a week, two and a half to three day a week, depending on the week, um, clinical practice. And that's at an academic institution. Uh, and that keeps me grounded. You know, like I, I, I really enjoy clinical work. Like I, I like impacting patient care. So I get some of that, but it also keeps me grounded is like what's going on in the trenches, you know, mm -hmm. like what are the problem, the next problems we want to solve? Uh, what, what sort of, what do I think, where do I think the machine learning technology we've developed or that we could develop, where can it really make an impact in sort of the day-to-day -day clinical workflow of a radiology department? It's hard to see that if you're not in it. And uh, for that reason, we, we really value the, um, our clinical work, we really value it. Uh, on the other sort of the other advantage to to having a, a clinical work, particularly in an academic setting, is that it keeps you in the and not only in the sort of in the trenches for clinical work, but in the trenches for like what's going on in the research world. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we talk with the lab and stuff like that too. But but I, it's like it's just another avenue to pursue this kind of work from a, a different perspective. And and I really think like the more I learn and the more I see and the more sort of I, I live, like the really the interesting things happen at the intersection of fields, yeah. you know, because there are much fewer people at those intersections than, you know, there's lots of computer scientists or there's lots of doctors, but there are few people that have both of those skill sets. And, and that's when you see opportunities that others may have missed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, here's, here's a question um, that I, I guess I'd love your opinion on. In terms of regulation around uh, data sets that you can get from your hospital because you're, you're connected them clinically and academically, um, it, it's really hard, rightfully so, because there are uh, there are privacy there's privacy legislation that makes sure that all this data has to be has to be DN like de-identified, et cetera, for the safety of the patient. But there are cultures and countries out there that don't necessarily have these restrictions. And as a result, they're able to gain more traction in the uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning space, especially perhaps in the medical field. What you've had to do as a consequence of that, perhaps, I don't know, is target that, that, that less obvious problem of osteoporosis rather than mammograms. So how do you plan to compete with these bigger, uh, with these perhaps bigger companies that have larger data sets? Um, that can easily sell into Canada just as well? So it's, it's a great question. Uh, the first thing I would say is that there, there is a point probably in most domains where there's diminishing returns to your data, mm -hmm. just like in most things, right? Like, you know, you read 10 textbooks on a topic, the 11th textbook probably doesn't give you as much as the first one mm -hmm. did, right? Similar sort of thing. You should tell my mom so, that. <laughs> well, for you in med, in med school, maybe not. Maybe get to 50 and then we can talk. Um, but so, so that's one thing. Like just because you have more data doesn't mean your system is better. Yeah. But the other thing that I think is probably more important is that like the, the use case, like our, our use case for osteoporosis, I think is like very compelling uh, and it's compelling from every angle. Like it's compelling from the medical imaging department side. It's compelling from the patient side. It's compelling and it's compelling from the payer side. And what I mean by payer is like who pays for the healthcare. In Canada, it's the government that pays for healthcare, provincial mostly. 
Uh, in the U.S., it's a private insurance company. So it's very compelling from all these sides. And I think coming up with this, with this solution is not obvious. And um, the reason we can do so is because of our sort of multidisciplinary background. So I think just because there's a really well-funded company that is based in a country that have more lenient privacy laws and thus they have more data, I don't think that means that they're going to win. Um, and we've seen that. We've seen big companies that have raised lots of money that have been around since we started. And they've been either, you know, sold for pieces or haven't been successful and haven't really generated revenue. And this sort of jump back and forth. It ties to like, it ties to your previous question around like, why haven't we raised money? And one of the reasons we didn't raise money at the time is back in sort of 2016, when we made the company, we didn't feel like, like the market was ready to purchase AI solutions, yeah. partly because the regulatory guidelines weren't there. The, the clinical world wasn't comfortable using it. So to, to raise $30 million, you're now on a clock to generate revenue. Otherwise, you have to raise again just to survive. So it's like, it's something that we didn't think was a, str a strategically right decision. And, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you could have raised that money back then because, uh, you know, you have to have a compelling product, but we didn't pursue it really because it just it didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, I forget I forget your current question now. My current question was like, <laughs> how do you plan to compete with these larger groups? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like I said, just because you're just because there's they have more money and they may have access to more data doesn't mean they're going to win. I think there's a lot of art in figuring out how to properly introduce machine learning in a way that motivates all of the stakeholders and improves patient care because it is it is like a sad truth that because resources are infinite just because something improves the health of people doesn't mean it's implemented or adopted mm -hmm. because of cost right you you need to reach a certain level of you, your product has to make a certain amount of health economic sense in order to be implemented mm -hmm. and deployed. Uh, and so you want to design something that properly, influ properly influences all the stakeholders. And I think that's still very much an art. And, and that's, that's where the, the, the clinical domain knowledge and the technical knowledge, that's where it really helps. You're dropping knowledge bombs there. I, there, there are so many things that I want to ask questions about, but we don't have time. I, I do want to close off, though, by asking you if there are any pluggables that you want to plug, anything that you want to share, any websites, Twitter handles, et cetera. Um, to be honest, we're, we're not too active uh, on social media. Um, our website has been up 16www.16bit.ai. Uh, we're updating it recently. It's, it's, it's hasn't been updated in a while, mostly because we've really been heads down product development for a year. It's been quite... A lot of work uh, and we're very proud of the work that we've done uh, you can find us on linkedin um, but uh, probably in the next two weeks or so we'll be updating our site it'll be reflective of what we're currently doing and um, there'll be a contact page so if anybody wants to reach out uh, demo or just get in touch potential partner potential research uh, we're, we're pretty fast with our replies sounds great and you can find how it's met on at how it's met on twitter and linkedin and at howitsmed.com. Thank you.